We're going to be in the book of Daniel. You can open up to Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read quite a bit of this and then attempt to make sense of it. We're entering into a very unique part of the Bible. Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings on, of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before which three of the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. That's totally clear, right? No explanation needed. Verse 15, he gets a little explanation. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, <laughs> I bet, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Father, We are grateful for Daniel, for his life stories, the way he maintained his integrity in a very difficult town called Babylon, the way he faced down lions, fiery furnaces, angry kings. And now, Lord, as we enter into this section, we pray that we would gain wisdom from Daniel, the prophet. So may you speak, and can we have ears that can hear 
what you would want to say to each one of us this day. And we ask this in your name, by your spirit. Amen. So, um, this is a complicated section of Scripture. And all I want to do today is just kind of fly over chapters 7 and 8 because they tell the same thing from just two different views. That They're telling the same thing about four kingdoms, if you would. Uh, you can get down in the weeds pretty deep in these chapters, and there are books and tons of them written. We'll do a little bit of this on Wednesday, uh, but not so much today. The main message is it's hitting on evil and suffering and wicked governments and beastly kinds of people. And during those events in history, how that affects God's people. Like, what do we do when there's wickedness all around us? What do we do? How do we respond? How do we live? Um, In Revelation, when there's really wickedness, in chapter 6, verse 10, it says, the, the souls cried out from the altar, how long? God, how much longer will this wickedness, this terrible stuff go on, right? So it's both about beastly governments, but it's also about some wicked, wicked individuals that will come. You can look at verse 24 of chapter 7. Look what it says. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise. And another shall arise after them. He, singular, shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. Or skip over to chapter 8, verse 9. Talks about the same guy or a similar guy. Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolation or the abomination of desolation? And how long will the sanctuary be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So you have wicked governments, and Wednesday we'll see what they are, but there's also this wicked individual. And there's always this conjecture about who is this individual. Well, we stand now with a little bit of 2020 hindsight, and what you can tell from this, and we'll look at this on Wednesday, is it's talking about an archetype, that there's going to be these wicked individuals that come up. 
And almost every Bible commentary agree on one of them. And his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Who's heard of Antiochus Epiphanes? Okay, I'll tell you about him. So now everyone will have heard about Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a quarter of the empire that Alexander the Greek defeated. So he took over a quarter of it. His family did. His uh, name was a name he gave to himself, and it means God manifest. So he thought he was God, right? Probably has some issues. His people called him not Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Epimenides, which means the madman, because he was a madman. He was nuts, right? So his dad had defeated Egypt, and Egypt was a vassal state, meaning they paid money to him every single year. Well, they stopped that. So Antiochus Epiphanes, who thinks he's God, says, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to get my money. The time was 168 BC. So he gets his army. He's up north of Israel. He travels down through Israel, comes into Egypt. But before he can get there, there's this old guy. His name is Gaius Papalius. He's an 80-year-old Roman. He comes out in the middle of the road as Antiochus Epiphanes is headed down there with his army and says, stop. He said, turn around or it's war with Rome. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes knew this. Rome was about ready to ascend. They were taking over the world. They were the most dominant power. He knew this. He could never defeat Rome. But he still thought he was God. So he's trying to figure out, how do I save face here? I got this old dude who's standing in my way telling me I can't go forward. And so he said, okay, let me go confer with my generals and I'll give you my answer later. Gaius Papalius, this 80-year-old man, took a stick, drew a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and said, you will give me your answer before you cross that line. Whoopee! <laughs> right? So he has to just back down. His pride, his arrogance is wounded. He heads back up and turns into Jerusalem where he unleashes his madness and his rage. He goes into the temple slaughters a pig, forces the priests to drink the blood of a pig, unkosher, obviously, sets up an image of Zeus in the temple. It's called the abomination of desolation. Says this, no one may worship Yahweh anymore. Everybody in Israel has to worship my gods and me. And he sent out this message. If you're caught with the Bible, the Old Testament, you'll be killed. If you circumcise your babies... The mother and the baby will be killed. If you're caught keeping the Sabbath day, you'll be killed. So this message goes out. And if you know your history, one of the messengers come to this guy. He was a priest. His name was Mattathias. Let's just call him Matt for short. <laughs> and he had five kids. Literally, he had five kids. It's close as I'll get to a superhero. So Mattathias with his five kids, he's in this city called Modin. This messenger comes and says... From now on, the worship of Yahweh is outlawed to prove that you have made allegiance to Antiochus Epiphanes. You need to make a sacrifice to Zeus right here. Well, Mattathias said, no way, dude, I ain't doing that. This other priest that was there said, I'll do it. So as he goes up to try to make this sacrifice, this old priest, Mattathias, pulls out a knife and stabs this other priest. Like he's hardcore, right? Causes a little bit of a problem. So Mattathias and his five boys take off. 
And they start this guerrilla warfare called the Maccabean Revolt. Read about it, it's brilliant. And they start to just fight against Antiochus Epiphanes, saying, no way, we, we serve Yahweh. And over the course of three years, they drive one of the dominant powers of the region out of Israel. It's the David versus Goliath, just story of, the hist- of history. And so finally they drive Antiochus Epiphanes and his crew out of Jerusalem, and they come to the temple that's been defiled with pig's blood. They cleanse it. And they're wondering about lighting the lamp because there was a lamp that's always supposed to be lit in the sanctuary. But they look at the oil and there's only enough oil for one day. And it takes eight more days to make more oil. So they're faced with this dilemma. What do we do? And they said, we have to light the lamp. So they pour the oil in there and they light it. And miraculously, it lasts for two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days, eight days. It's a miracle. And to this day, Jews celebrate that event in what's called Hanukkah, or in the Bible actually calls it the Festival of Lights. Brilliant, right? So who's this wicked individual that makes abomination of desolation? No doubt it's Antiochus Epiphanes. But guess what? Jesus says there's another one coming. That whatever this is, it's actually not just one time, it's a cycle, right? It's a cycle of wicked individuals that will rise up and they will try to outlaw and come against and attack the followers of God. And just a little bit after Jesus, one comes up. His name, Caesar Nero, right? He and his boyfriend, Tigulius, they end up setting Rome on fire, burn it to the ground, and they're like, ooh, that was probably a mistake. So who do they blame? The Christians. They said the Christians are always saying they're the light of the world. They did this. And it started one of the most brutal persecutions of Christians where they'd be dipped in oil and set on fire in Caesar Nero's gardens while he shrieked the light of the world, right? And it doesn't end there. There's actually 10 waves of persecution that hit the Christians, and it culminates in Diocletian, at the end of the third century, where he just tries to outlaw any worship of Jesus. And about 20,000 Christians are killed. The catacombs of Rome are full of the bones of believers that died during this time, whether in the gladiator fights, fed to lions, or crucified, right? So it's not just, just one individual. It's actually this cycle of individuals that are going to come against God's people. So Daniel sees this, right? And then he sees something else. Like one of the most interesting little phrases is in verse 25, it says this. There's going to be this individual that comes and it says he's going to try to change the times and the law. Do you know what happened in our history? There was a group of people that actually tried to take away the weak. Have you guys heard of that? You can Google it. It's called the Seven Day War. And it was happened in France and it happened in Russia. Two states that said, we're going to be purely secular. We're not going to have anything to do with God. So we can't have the weak. Well, why does the weak have anything to do with God? Here's why. Why do we have 30 days in a month or about 30 days in a month? The cycle of the moon. Very good, right? The cycle of the moon is about 30 days. So most ancient cultures cultures had a lunar calendar based on the moon. Why do we have 365.25 days in a year? The time it takes for the sun to go around the 
earth to go. I'm going way back, huh? <laughs> yeah. Time that the earth goes around the sun. Why do we have seven days in a week? There's no natural phenomena that dictates the seven-day week. There isn't any, right? It puzzles scientists. Here's why. Because while there is no natural phenomenon to that, the human body has what's called a circuseptum rhythm, a seven-day rhythm. So if you could take your blood pressure or your heart rate and you measured it for six days, it will be one level, but then on the seventh day, it'll drop down. Tooth growth in infants. For six days, teeth grow in an infant, and then on the seventh day, they stop. And every mom says, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) Right? All these things, hormones in your body. There's this crazy thing. Six days, they'll be at this, and then on the seventh day, there'll be something else. It's crazy. It's a circuseptum rhythm. And there's a guy, his name is Dr. Franz Halberg. And he studied this and he said, it's not just in humans, it's actually reflected through the creative order. So he studied algae blooms. And what he found was this, an algae bloom will grow rapidly for six days. And then guess what it does on the seventh day? It rests. And then six days it grows and then it rests. Like how crazy is that? So where did we get this seven day rhythm? Genesis chapter one, six days God creates on the seventh day he rests, right? And so what, what these countries try to say, France and Russia was, no, it's not God, it's cultural. I say, really? Algae does not have culture, trust me, <laughs> right? And so they try to outlaw it. Russia with a five-day week, France with a 10-day week, both of them were hugely catastrophic and they had to just give them up because it messed people up so much, right? Changing the very times, an attack on God. So what what the vision of chapter seven and eight is there will be these super evil governments and these super evil things that rise up and they attack God. And if you look at history, that's exactly what has happened. The Soviet Union, Hitler, Pol Pot, just on and on and on. There's been these cycles that come, even trying to get rid of a week because it talks about the biblical definition of creation. Right? So Daniel has this. He has this vision, right? And, and he already knows this, right? Daniel is living in one of those beasts. It's Babylon. He'll live in the second beast as well, the Medo-Persian Empire. He knows how evil they are. They've killed his family, probably. Destroyed his town. Destroyed his livelihood. Taken away his manhood. Made him a slave, a refugee in Babylon. He knows how evil they are. So then he's reading this. He gets very upset about it because because what are we waiting for then? Is life just a cycle of these beasts that will come up and that's all there is? We're just waiting for the next Hitler to come on the scene? Is that the deal? No. There's great hope in this chapter. Look at verse nine. In the middle of this chapter, it's like it interrupts it. It disrupts it. It comes right in the center of it. Hey, hey, wait. Wait, Daniel. Before you get too freaked out, look at this. Verse nine. And as I looked... Thrones, plural, were placed. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. Then look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who, pray tell, could this possibly be? Who interrupts in the middle of this nightmare? Who is it? It's Jesus. It is this text that gets Jesus killed. Do you know that? Let me try to show it to you. So I have a slide. This is Matthew chapter 26. And this is what, what is happening to Jesus as he's on trial. So the high priest is asking him some questions, trying to get to the bottom of it. So listen to this. Matthew 26, verse 63. 62. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's this idea that Jesus never claimed to be God. Perhaps you will run into people that say that. That Jesus never says he's God. Right here, he's doing that. But he's doing it in a language that people 2,000 years ago that were Jewish would totally understand, okay? So it would be like this. I'll try to give you a modern example. If I stood up here and I said this, I live on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., in the White House. My wife, Charity, is the first lady, and I need to leave right now because Air Force One is waiting for me. Who am I saying that I am? Right? We get all that. Okay, that's exactly what Jesus is doing right here. So he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, my Lord, or the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's a term of divinity. He quotes that he's the cloud rider, right? You're going to see me come on the clouds. If you know your Bible, one of the metaphors for God is that he comes on the clouds. Psalm 104, verse 3, Isaiah 19, right here in the book of Daniel. He's the cloud rider. Jesus says, I'm the cloud rider. And then he calls himself what? The son of man. 88 times in the Bible, Jesus refers to himself as a son of man. He is pointing right back to this text. He's saying, I'm God. And here's the great thing about the Bible. Very often when we miss what, what's being said, the people that lived in that culture got it. So look at the next slide. Look how the high priest responds to Jesus. He gets it. He knows what Jesus is saying. Look what he says. Then 
The high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. He's saying he's God. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Why did Jesus get killed? Because he was a nice guy going around doing nice things and healing people and telling people to love each other? No, he was killed because he claimed to be God, right? And it's this text right here that Jesus is referencing, right? It's amazing. So let's think about Daniel for a second. Daniel has this nightmare. He's a good dude. A nightmare about these empires that are gonna rise up and he writes them out and this writing in the Bible, if you, if you know the Bible has different genres, this is called apocalyptic literature. It's a certain way of writing. It's very important that you know that to interpret it right. So uh, my theology professor says this about apocalyptic literature. He says it's resistance literature. It's written to people that will be going through difficulty, suffering, hardship, evil. It's written to them so that they know how to respond. When you're overwhelmed by evil, one evil beast after another, after another, one wicked person after another, after another, how do you respond? What do you do? Does that apply to us today? Ever feel overwhelmed by evil? I do. So we um, have had for the last month a little baby boy named Landon. We got him at day number two, I think. Uh, Just a brilliant baby, right? Um, He's a drug baby. He's the second one that we've had. Um, The first one was Harry. He was born addicted to heroin. Um, We had him for eight months. And heroin does something to a, a, a baby that just makes them just, they're always just kind of like, doesn't, didn't sleep well, just very hard, very hard. For eight months, just pretty much no sleep. Um, my wife was superhero. She rocket boosted Harry, right? So we had him just hard. Um, Landon, though, the, the baby we have now, he was born addicted to meth. Very different. Uh, meth babies, they sleep all the time. He'll sleep like 23 hours a day, like just sleeps all the time. I think what happened was he's like, for nine months in the womb, I did not sleep. I'm sleeping now for like nine months, okay? So just chalk it up. I'm going to sleep. Just a great baby. Um, just went back, praise the Lord. It, listen to this. Out of 19 foster care kids, he is the first one that's gone back to a birth parent that we've had. Yeah, praise God. We're super stoked about that. So he's back with mom on Thursday. But my wife, because of this, she's been watching documentaries and stuff on, on drug babies and, and trying to educate herself so she can best care for them. Um, and she watched this just Wednesday night. She's telling me that she'd watched this video on um, this town back east, middle of America, flyover state, where just a couple years ago, they'd get one drug baby, maybe a month. Now it's six a weekend. And they're just overwhelmed by it. And you hear about stuff like that, and your heart just breaks. Like, how, what, what in the world is going to happen when you've got six every single week, you know, six, eight, ten drug, new drug babies? What in the are going to run out of foster parents. Like, what's going to happen? And you just feel overwhelmed by this. Like, ah, you throw up your hands. That's apocalyptic literature. It's there to do something for us. So in this chapter, these two chapters, you know what we get? We get God's plan for the ages. The entire plan. So all of that that I just said is actually my introduction. Here's my message, but it'll be super quick. Because this chapter, chapter seven, just lays out 
Daniel, have hope. Here's why. Number one, here's God's plan of the ages. Number one, the Son of Man comes. Number one, the Son of Man comes. We just read that, verses 13 and 14. This is enthronement language, if you know your Bible. This is after Jesus has done what he's done, he's ascended, and now he's a thrown back to the right hand of the Father. It's enthronement language. The Son of Man has come. Praise God for that. We look backward and we're like, yes, yes. And the good news about this is Jesus is coming back to complete the kingdom he began 2,000 years ago, right? John 14, don't let your heart be troubled. Know this, I'm coming back for you. So Jesus began it 2,000 years ago, inaugurated it, and he will complete it when he returns. You may ask, what is he waiting for? He's waiting for you and me to get saved, literally. He's waiting for your loved ones to get saved. He's waiting for baby Landon to get saved. That's what he's waiting for. It's 2 Peter 3 verse 9, that he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I'm so glad he waited for me. Be glad he's waiting. There are people that still Jesus wants to bring into his kingdom. So number one, the son of man comes. Praise God. Number two, judgment comes. Look at verse 10. It's talking about the heavenly scene. It says, the court sat in judgment and the books were open. Then you can skip forward to verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. Number two, judgment is coming. This beastly cycle of evil or wicked individuals, one day it's going to end. All the wars, all the terrorisms, all the bombings, all the gas chambers, all the killing fields, all of that one day will be judged and ended. It will be rolled up into a ball, Revelation chapter 20, and thrown into this place called the lake of fire. Done with. Is that good news? Oh, man. If it's not good news, then you have not been hurt bad enough by evil yet to rejoice when the judgment comes down on it. So number two, judgment comes. And then number three, look at this, verse 22. Until the ancients of date, I'll back up to verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Then you can skip down to verse 27. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Thirdly, the saints rule. Every person that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, you become a king or queen that rules right next to him. That is your destiny. If you've been at Edgewater for any time, you know this. You are right now a king or a queen in training to one day possess the kingdom. How cool is that? That's it. There's the plan of the ages. Matt, how does that help me? How does that help baby Landon? How does that help the drug problem? How does that help me? I mean, that's way out there. Here's how. Number one, it gives you hope. It should give you hope. Here's how. So here's my illustration. Back in 2014, the last time the Beavers won football games, 
I'm serious, it was. Not one sense, like one game. So back when they were winning football games, um, I had a Saturday that was just, it was soccer Saturday. I had four soccer games to go to or this really big, very important Oregon State football game to watch. Do I serve the beast of soccer or be blessed by football? I serve the beast. So I'm out watching soccer games. Um, and someone came up to me. He's like, dude, the Beavers won. They pulled it off. I'm like, no way. That's awesome. Right? Well, I go home that night. Elijah, my son's like, hey, let's find the game on YouTube and let's watch it. I'm like, cool. Yeah, let's do that. So we get the game up and we're watching it. And the Beavers are just playing horribly, like interceptions and fumbles and the quarterback's getting sacked. Just typical Beaver football. Now, normally when this happened, I'd be like, oh, I hate you guys. Not this time. You know why? I knew the future. In fact, the, the more terrible they played, the more excited I got. How in the world are they going to pull this off? What in the world? There's supposed to be an awesome ending to this. Listen, that's life. You and I know the end. Are you kidding me? It's getting horrible. Oh, man. How is King Jesus going to pull this off? Are you kidding me? He's come, he's returning for me. And when he does, I will rule and reign with him for eternity. Ha! If you're charismatic, we'd say amen. Amen. We're Edgewater, at least smile, you know? (laughs) It seems good. Uh. Hope. Number two, live it now. I love the end of chapter eight. It says, Daniel, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then... I rose and went about the king's business. Daniel doesn't get all, oh no, this is the end of it. Oh, Daniel says, okay, I'm gonna start working for what I see. It's Jeremiah 29, pray for the peace of your city. Plant gardens in your city. Give your kids in marriage. Bless your city, right? That we are right now kings and queens in training. If that's the kingdom that's coming, then each of us should be dreaming. How can Grant's past look a little bit like that coming kingdom and try to make it happen right now? Pushing back against darkness, taking in drug babies into your home, loving people, helping them, living like a king right now that will rule and reign with him forever. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what Daniel does his whole life in the most wicked city in the Bible. He goes, I'm gonna live it now. I'm gonna pray for the peace of this city. I'm going to bless it. I'm going to see it materialize the best that I can right now. We're supposed to be about the king's business. And then thirdly and lastly, here's what this chapter should do to you. The truth is, there's a beast in every single human heart. There's a beast inside of me. And if I don't temper that, and if I don't have Jesus come and disrupt that nightmare that could be my life, disrupt that evil that's in my heart, I'm going to head into a very beastly, terrible life of myself. And I'll stand underneath his judgment. And so every Sunday, we come to the table. And by coming to the table, what we're actually asking is this. Jesus, today, interrupt my heart. Jesus, today, maybe this last week was a nightmare for you. Maybe the last month or the last year, you've been acting beastly. You come to the table and you say, Jesus, today, interrupt that in me. Wake me out of my slumber. Get me back on track. I know that apart from you, I can do nothing. And so we come to the table, and by coming to the table, that's what we're doing every single Sunday. Interrupt me. Don't let me go that direction. Help me. Change me. Transform me. 
And so we take communion. And so I'm going to pray, and after I pray, um, you're going to embody the remembrance. You're going to stand up, find somewhere to get communion, grab it, then come back to your seat, and then we'll take it together. So if you're here last week, it's just communion's there, there. There's two in the back. You find the closest one you can. You come back to your seat, and then we take it as a corporate body together, remembering the great disruptor, the one that cleanses the temple and changes us. And so Jesus, this day, We can see evil in our city, in our country, in our world. And it can cause us to be overwhelmed like Daniel. I pray that we'd get the hope that you have come and you will return. That there will be judgment. And each one of us that love you are going to sit on thrones, ruling and reigning for eternity with you. May that give us great hope. I pray as we take the cup and as we take the bread, I pray that if our life has been a nightmare recently, if our hearts have been acting beastly, that we would give you permission this morning, this day, to tame us, to change us, to make us after your image. That's our hope. Our hope is to leave looking like our high king, looking like you. So do the work that only you can do. And we ask this in your perfect, majestic name. Amen.